0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com
1: to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam, can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now... Your host, Mark Kenyon.
1: Welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 51. Today in the show, we're discussing all things gun hunting with Luke Wilkinson, a firearm design engineer with Remington Arms. Alright, welcome to the wired to hunt podcast and as I mentioned just a second ago, today we're talking about gun hunting and firearms. And as I'm sure you know, gun hunting for deer is one of the most popular forms of deer hunting in the country really, but since Dan and I don't spend as much time in the woods with a gun as we do with a bow, we've kind of failed to talk about this on the podcast so far. That said... I know it's something that still a lot of you are interested in. So today we've got Luke Wilkinson, a firearm design engineer from Remington Arms, joining us on the show to help us dive deep into this topic. He's going to be able to offer a lot more insight than either me or Dan can, that's for sure. So in the next hour or so, we're going to talk about everything from picking out the right gun to hunt with to maintaining and caring for your guns to, to practicing with, and finally actually hunting deer with your firearm. So it's gonna be loaded with helpful information for any and all of you that plan on hunting deer with a gun this season. But before all of that, I wanna catch up a little bit with my brother from another mother, co host Mr. Dan Johnson. What's going on, man?
2: That was a pretty good introduction. <laughs> I felt I felt like I felt like I was wanted yeah. with that introduction.
1: You are. You are Dan. Everyone out okay, there listening good. right now, that's what they've been waiting for. They're just waiting for Dan to get on the air.
2: And I'm here.
1: I'm glad. How was your Easter, man? It was good. It was good. It was pretty low key. Um, just kind of took care of some stuff around the house and spent some time, uh, you know, eating good food and catching up with with everyone. But uh, otherwise, it was a, it was, a it was a weekend full of disappointment, to be honest with you.
2: Like yeah. your your wife didn't cook as good of a meal as you should have, as she should have, <laughs> or like what kind of disappointment are you talking about?
1: No, no, the wife cooked some really good food. The the disappointment okay. was related to basketball, as you know. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm a, as you know Dan, I'm a big Michigan State homer and uh we just kind of we kind of hit a wall on Saturday night. So that was a bummer.
2: I wish I could say I feel sorry for you or um I don't watch basketball.
1: So So you got nothing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. I'm over it. It was a great run, but, uh, but on a, on a more relevant topic, the other thing I'm thinking about right now, which is the opposite of being disappointed was just before I jumped on, on the air here, to talk with you. I was interviewing someone for a story and this guy was from Ohio and he killed a 210 inch buck last year. And, um, he sent over these trail camera pictures and this buck is just an incredible deer. But what's super cool about it is he had a bunch of, like, wire stuck on one side of his antlers. He got stuck in a fence or something. I don't know what it was from. Um, but these pictures were just super cool. And just kind of flipping through all these shots, it just got me, like, super pumped up for deer hunting. Or like, you know, it's it's April, but I got, like, a little bit of a adrenaline rush just thinking about November. <laughs>
2: Heck yeah, man. Sometimes if you don't watch those adrenaline rushes, they'll they'll keep you from going to sleep at night. That's why I I try to stay off the, uh, the worldwide web before uh, I go to bed. Because if I, if I run across an article about a big deer or, you know, um, mule deer hunting out west or anything like that, I I get fired up and then I'm not tired. So I'll lay thinking about You know the upcoming fall, or what I need to do this spring to uh, to get ready, and it just it creates like kind of like a snowball effect of energy until I finally gotta go like take a shot or something to get me calmed down again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I can't claim that late night shots are what I need to do to to fall asleep, (laughs) but but I can definitely relate to the excitement. Um, Man, it's 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 an addiction, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, you know I just. I think you just posted something and I just posted something today just about the fact that antler growth is starting again for a lot of deer right now. And uh, the cycle, the regenerating cycle of antler growth kicking off here in April, um, that gets me pretty excited too because in May and June we're going to start seeing those antlers pop up and we'll start to see, you know, what bucks are back and who's hanging out in the area. And the whole cycle just kicks off again. And, uh, man, I can't wait.
2: Yep. My buddy sent me a trail camera picture uh, yesterday of a buck with two inch velvet nubs already like just real small like real small nubs so I mean it starts as soon as those antlers fall off
1: that's awesome that's exciting to hear yeah you're right it's uh they're out there and it's just you know it's just cool I I just love the summer getting to see like I mentioned earlier getting to see who's back finding out what's in the area and all the anticipation. I think that's one of my favorite things about deer hunting is just the anticipation of deer hunting, just looking forward to it and thinking about it and dreaming about it. Like you said, staying up all night, obsessing over it. Um, now's a good time to do that. So
2: it's kind of cool because I know guys like me and you, we research our trail camera pictures to the point where we don't really need the antlers to, uh, to tell, what buck is who so it's like oh it's uh it's old rod he's got a he's got a clip in his ear and he's got kind of like uh his white nose goes up just a little bit past where a normal you know where it normally does or this buck's got a double throat patch or this buck's got a you know swollen knee or something like that and and we can tell what bucks you know who they are before the season before they even have their antlers so
1: yeah it's pretty cool it's pretty cool, and I think um, you know today we're just going to get that much more into uh, the excitement of all because we'll be talking about you know gun hunting, which for a lot of people is something they look forward to every year, and I do too. Um, I always enjoy getting out there a couple times for um, the gun season here in Michigan, and you know taking out my muzzleloader or something like that in one of the other states I hunt. So. I think we're going to have a, an interesting conversation and definitely something that, that kind of fills a gap for you and me or maybe a weakness a little bit. Like you and I, we, we spend a ton of time out in the woods with a bow. And we talk about that a lot, but uh, we haven't really touched on the whole firearm side of things. And you know, that's an important side of, of, of hunting as a lot of people go out there and spend a lot of their time out there carrying a, carrying some kind of firearm out there chasing deer but I just don't have that expert insight into you know the technical side of things how to pick out the right gun or how to really be taking the best care of it or you know different things to think about when you're actually out there hunting with a gun Um, I don't have as much experience and and insight to that so I'm excited that Luke can uh, can help us out with that and um, I think he's going to give us a lot of interesting insight especially given the fact that he's an engineer a firearm engineer Um, so he's really you know a terrific resource about everything when it comes to guns. So I guess it should be pretty cool. I'm ready. Well, if you're ready, I think I'm ready. I think we should, uh, we should get Luke on the phone and we should start talking guns. Let's do it. All right. On the line with us now is Luke Wilkinson. Welcome to the show, Luke.
3: Well Thanks for having me, Mark.
1: Yeah. You know, Dan and I were just talking a couple minutes ago about the fact that, uh, you know, Gun hunting and firearms are a little bit of a weak spot for us, so we're really excited to have you on the line with all the experience that you have to really help us, you know, dive into this topic and and share some helpful experiences and insight that me and Dan probably wouldn't be able to give our listeners. So, so thank you for joining us. And that said, you know, as we mentioned a little earlier, you know, you, you do work as a firearm design engineer for a major firearm company, but could you tell us a little more detail about you know maybe a little bit about who you are as a hunter and and maybe how you got into all that. And then finally, you know, what you do for a day job.
3: Uh, Sure. Yeah. Um, I got started uh, hunting probably when I was about 14 years old. Um, I I actually was, was born uh, in the suburbs of St. Louis, but moved to uh, middle Tennessee when I was about 10 years old. And uh, after I got there and started making friends. A lot of my friends were, would talk about going hunting. So, uh, at that point I was like, well, this sounds really fun. I'm in. And, uh, so I guess I, I, my first year hunting was probably fall of, uh, 97 or so. First year deer hunting. had a, uh, lot of close calls, missed some deer, you know, it, um, you know, one of those things that that everybody seems to do getting started, and uh, basically, you know, I, I've uh, um, been hunting ever since, and I've gotten really, uh, really involved in uh, deer hunting and some um, quality deer management type things, and then uh, turkey hunting as well. Um, so I guess what what made me reach out to you um, about this podcast is that, uh, you know, during the course of essentially learning how to hunt, um, I had some help along the way with a, an uncle who was a um, pretty solid contributor to teaching me how to hunt. And uh, But I, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, you know, everything from hunting strategy to i had a still occasionally have a problem with getting in the moment of truth and, you know, missing, blowing the shot or whatever, getting excited or you know having um some sort of equipment issue prevent me from you know capitalizing um so fast forward a little bit from you know when i was growing up learning to hunt and um i'm actually i got a after i got my master's in mechanical engineering i got a job at a as a design engineer at a uh, major firearms company so in um The last six years uh, working where I do, I've, you know, learned a lot of things, um, kind of uh, learned there are a lot of mistruths out there and a lot of old wives tales about this, um, you know, shooting related stuff. Um, So I figured this would be a good opportunity to kind of debunk some of those uh, myths or offer, you know, whatever insight I can as to, uh, some tips that, you know, that'll, uh, help people, you know, that work so hard all year to put themselves in position to, to harvest this, this deer and then, you know, prevent them from having some sort of equipment related issue that, uh, causes them to, to choke in the moment of truth.
1: Yeah. Well, I can certainly relate to that, you know, um, For anyone who's listened to the podcast over the past couple months, just this past year in December, I had a situation where I missed an opportunity at a deer, I think it was three times, two times in a row or three times because of a firearm malfunction with my muzzleloader. I had one where my gun wouldn't cock back. And then the second time I was able to get my gun cocked back, but when I shot, it misfired. And then the third time I had an issue where the gun wouldn't cock back and then finally I forced it back and then no. Yes, I got it cocked back, but when I pulled the trigger it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't go off. And then when I went to try to get the hammer pulled back even further, I thought maybe the hammer wasn't locked all the way back. When I tried to fix that and I just brushed my thumb against it. The hammer did explode for it. And then the gun went off and, you know, didn't hit what I was originally aiming at before messing around with that. So I, I kind of experienced it all just in December, trying to kill a doe. <laughs> uh, you remember that well, Dan, don't you? <laughs> I do. I do. Yes. Yeah, so that didn't go well. Um, so I'm glad that you can be the person to give us this advice because certainly based on how I've been doing lately, I'm the one making the mistakes too. And I'm the guy that needs this help. So um, that said, I'm curious, you said that you're a, You're a design engineer for a firearm company. Uh, You know, what do you do? What are you designing? What are you engineering? What's your job?
3: Um, My particular job, I actually work um, on defense-related firearms. Uh, So I deal, uh, most of my career has dealt with um, semi-automatic and automatic, uh, you know, like machine gun. Like, uh, for example, the the M4 that the uh, Army uses. Uh, I've worked on, uh, you know, improvements to that, um, uh, upgrades like uh, all together different, um, guns for that. And then I've also worked on, uh, like semi-automatic sniper systems. So, uh, a little bit, um, more long range, uh, capable guns, um, that really, they follow the pattern of the, uh, for what we call like a modern sporting rifle, which a lot of people call like an AR-15 or an AR-10. Um, so I, I've got a lot of experience in uh, magazine-fed semi-automatic and and automatic uh, weapons. And uh, I guess uh, that's part of my responsibilities has been, you know, designing and testing and uh, troubleshooting guns in order to meet requirements that are um, set forth by, by the government for different,
1: um, solicitations. Wow. So that's, that sounds like some really serious stuff, but fascinating, I'm sure. Um, so would you, con- I'm assuming you would, but I'm assuming, you know, would you consider yourself a gun guy? You're like one of the, you like the details and the ballistics and all the numbers and everything.
3: I, 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 consider, I, I consider, I guess compared to most people, I definitely do consider myself a gun guy. Um, you know that being said, I work with a lot of people and I know a lot of people in the industry that um are just you know if they forgot more about guns than I will ever know you know
1: so <laughs> there's it's all relative, i guess
3: right exactly
1: so I guess with, with that all the way then it's safe to say that you know more about guns and gun hunting than I do. And then Dan does. Um, so, you know, what we are really hoping to do today is to to pick your brain about everything that someone needs to know to really be a smart, effective, well-prepared deer hunter with a firearm. And I think that starts with choosing the right gun. Um, so we've got a whole bunch of questions related to that. But I think Dan was going to kick us off. So So, Dan, where do you want to go from here?
2: So... To say that I, I don't know anything about guns is a huge understatement because I don't know anything about guns, period. I, I You could talk to me about rifles and I'd look at you like it was quantum physics, but for, for a, a brand new firearm, let's say someone like myself who doesn't know anything about calibers and, and gauges and all this stuff, what are some – what's some advice – or some tips that you, can, that you can give to a first-time gun owner that wants to get into firearm hunting?
3: Um, okay, well, the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, look at what state you live in or what state you're planning on hunting in. Um, because if I recommended for you to get a whiz-bang uh, fire rifle, that would be great other than you couldn't use it during Iowa's shotgun season because <laughs> they don't allow center fire rifles. Um, so I would say, uh, depending on what your state you know regulations are for deer hunting, um, that would, that would play a large part into what I, uh, you know, what I would go for. Uh, that being said for a shotgun slash muzzleloader only state like, uh, like Iowa or, um, I guess they want to shotgun only as well but for for those kind of states uh you know you have some trade-offs between shotgun uh, versus a muzzle loader um, so um uh, since since we're starting with the basics a muzzle loader is you know exactly you know what it sounds like you you actually load the powder and the bullet in from the muzzle and uh it's not a quick process, so you're limited. To w- pretty much one shot. You know, I've seen I've seen videos of people getting multiple shots off on deer with a muzzleloader, but you, you can pretty much count on uh, one shot only for for, for those. Uh, you know, some of the benefits of a muzzleloader is that you generally your projectiles are a little bit um, flatter shooting. So if your range estimation is a little bit off so if you if you have your gun sighted in at say 100 yards and the deer comes out at 125 or 150 yards you can pretty much count on uh keeping the same point of aim your bullet's not going to drop that much between 100 and 150 yards as opposed to a shotgun which has especially like a 12 gauge shotgun um, if you're shooting a slug you're looking at uh, a significant amount of drop between 100 and 150 yards. Um, that could potentially cause you to miss miss the deer if you aim where you would normally aim at 100. So that that's something that's something to keep in mind um, as far as before you go out there, you want you want accuracy by volume. You want to have the shotgun where you can reload and pop as many rounds downrange as possible, or do you want to make a single well placed um, shot uh,
1: with a muzzle loader so quick uh, interjection then given there's like the cost benefit analysis between the two there if if you were choosing if you could only hunt in an area that you know didn't allow rifles and you had to pick between a shotgun or a muzzle loader what would you personally choose
3: i typically use muzzle loaders um, i actually have a property uh, that I hunt, that the landowner prefers that I, I don't use rifles because um, he lives on the property and has a, a fear of, you know, w- wayward bullets. Um, so, but he lets me use muzzleloaders um, and shotguns and, and archery there. So I, when I go there, I typically uh, go with a muzzle muzzleloader. I feel confident out to 150 yards and uh, don't have to worry about range estimation or anything like that.
0: For all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater.
1: Okay. Now, so we've talked you need to decide what you can use in your area. Can you only use a shotgun or muzzleloader, or can you use a rifle? Um, what else should you be thinking about now when you're making that decision? Because, you know, to Dan's point, especially if you have no experience with guns, um, I have more than he does, but I'm not necessarily a guru. Um, when you walk into a store like Cabela's or whatever your local gun shop is, there's a million, not a million, but there's a ton of different options. And there's all these different models and all these different calibers and all these different styles. Um, if if you were to say, you know, the the, the Basic baseline. Let's let's talk rifles now. Since we just talked about shotguns and muzzleloaders, what do you think would be just a a basic startup rifle for deer hunting that someone should look into? What would you say would be your, your overall first pick that someone should say, "Hey, this is a good start starter gun."
3: Um, I would say probably the most commonly used um, and what what I typically use or um, for most of my career has been just a bolt-action rifle. Uh, it's a very common uh, rifle. They're relatively easy to operate. Uh, there's a, a lot of models out there at all different price points. Um, so, you know, you can get an entry-level bolt-action rifle with a scope already mounted. It's already been laser-bore sighted so that, you know, when you go to sight to the gun in, your first shot's most likely going to be within three or four inches of where the scope is. Um, you can get those for 300, 350 bucks at Cabela's or are basketball Shops or, or wherever. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot of brands. I know, um, you know Remington has a Model 783. Uh, Marlin has their Model X7. Um, Savage makes a bolt action around that price point, I believe. And uh, I know the Ruger American is another good one at that price point. Um, and, and then going up from there, uh, you know, you're looking to spend uh, five or six hundred dollars on a rifle, or um, you can get like the, pretty much the the standard um, that a lot of uh, other rifles have been based on is the Remington Model 700 action. Um, so that's that's a pretty good <clears throat> mid level, uh, reliable, accurate uh, firearm that's been out there for a long time.
1: So here's a question for you. I mean, when you buy a gun like that, uh, like you mentioned, one of those entry-level bolt-action rifles that's in that three to $500 price point, um, from everything I've seen and from my own experience with them, they're pretty darn accurate, pretty darn dependable guns. I mean, they're quality. Um, what do you get when you upgrade to these other rifles that are $1,000 or $1,500? $1, is the difference that noticeable? And if so, you know what is it that you're paying for when you get that more expensive and more expensive gun?
3: Okay. Um, well, the fit and finish are generally a, a lot better. Um, so the lower price point guns are something that they're generally they're they're a lot higher volume. Um, the tolerances they uh, would have a little looser um, in order to. Just make sure that everything uh, fits and goes together. And the manufacturing process uh, processes are uh, generally not as like detailed. Um, but I guess you can get uh, like for for bolt action rifles, you can get uh, one big thing that uh, people talk. You hear a buzzword is the bedding, uh, the bedding of the action. So uh, a lot of the higher end guns will have um, like a uh, composite-type stock that has aluminum bedding blocks or, um, you know, uh, they'll count, they'll um, you know, free-floated barrel and, and things like that. Um, I would say that for, for the, the higher-price-point guns, you're getting a lot nicer-looking gun. Um, a lot of them, they'll uh, have, uh, like, coatings on them that'll make them... Uh, better, more rust resistant or it may be a, a stainless steel action instead of a, uh, you know, a plain carbon steel action with, with, uh, with bluing or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, sometimes they'll, they'll offer better triggers with the, the, uh, the more expensive guns or, um, generally, you know, just generally more durable type product.
1: Okay. That makes sense. Um, now the, the the final thing I'm wondering about when it comes to choosing the right gun is caliber because this is another one of those things that I think can be intimidating for a lot of people because there's so many different calibers and I think a lot of people probably don't even know what it means um, or how to differentiate or, or what's needed. Um, is there you know maybe is there a best overall caliber for deer or if not is there a a handful of popular calibers that you'd recommend that if someone's going to the store you should look into these these handful of different calibers when they're choosing the right gun for for deer hunting.
3: Yeah, um, the, people will argue with you until they're blue in the face over what the best caliber is. Um, but, you know, I, I can definitely say some recommendations of some pretty popular proven calibers. Um, some of it is a little bit dependent on what kind of range it is you're looking at shooting. I and mean, if you're looking at, you know, your maximum distance, you're shooting a deer, at 100 yards, then oh, the, I mean, the, the possibilities are endless as far as calibers Um in a lot of the arguments for some of the other calibers are that, well, it's flatter shooting and, um, et cetera. But, uh, I mean, I think a good baseline cartridge is, is your 308. Um, that, that's a, um, it's a good trade off between, um, knockdown power. Um, you've got the ability for longer range shooting with it. Um, and the recoil is not such that it's going to, um, you know, just, jar you so bad that you're afraid to shoot it um, for like someone that's a little bit smaller of stature um, maybe something like a 243 uh, 243 is essentially like a neck down 308, so it's the the same uh, parent cartridge a uh, smaller a little bit lighter weight bullet so your recoil is going to be a little bit less um, if you want to go bigger um, 30-06 is, is a pretty popular one uh, it's been, been around a long time 300 Win Mag uh, is also a, a good one. Uh, and two, 270 would probably be the other one I'd throw in with that group.
2: So of all those calibers that you just mentioned, that would be for a regular, I mean, regular first-time hunter. Now, would you suggest a different caliber for maybe women or children?
3: Uh, for women? Women or children. I, I personally like the 243. Uh, that's a, it's a really, uh, I, I think it's a good trade-off uh, between uh, you've, you've got, it's a good knockdown power, uh, a wide availability of bullets. Um, so you can go to, to Walmart or uh, Cabela's, and they're probably going to have ten different flavors of 243 bullets there. Um, but you definitely don't want to go. Um, on the bigger side. Uh especially uh small of stature people, women, children, um, whatever, they're gonna be recoil sensitive. Um and the last thing you want is to in, introduce some sort of bad habit as a result of them being afraid of the recoil of the gun.
2: Now I, I I know you mentioned and this may sound like a dumb question on my part, but knockdown power. What what is what would you say is the definition of knockdown power?
3: I would call it like kinetic energy of the bullet. So your kinetic energy is a function of the mass of the bullet and the velocity of the gotcha. bullet. Um, so like a, a 243, you can buy a hundred grain bullet. Um, and, you know, with the muzzle velocities that are typical for uh, that caliber, uh, you're going to have X amount of kinetic energy that is more than capable of breaking through bone you know you put it on the shoulder 100 yards and you're you're going to penetrate and
1: you're going to put the deer down so next you sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier and so it's kind of tying to that you talked about your experience with modern sporting rifles or you know some people refer to them things based on the ar platform um what are your thoughts on modern sporting rifles for deer hunting you know are they appropriate gun for deer hunters and if so You know, is there any type you would recommend?
3: Um, So there's a whole, there's kind of a political aspect to the the modern sporting rifle because obviously they look different than what people are used to as a a deer rifle. Um, You know, the biggest difference is they're um, magazine fed. You know, a shotgun has a magazine, but it's in in a tube form. But, um, you know, these modern sporting rifles have a detachable magazine, um, and it's a semi-automatic. So you, you, when you pull the trigger, it fires the round, ejects the spent case, and then loads, uh, the next round. Um, from my perspective, I actually, um, have gotten to where I enjoy carrying these deer hunting. Um, they're... It's it's probably as much uh, just the the nature of the beast, and, and it's what I work work with a lot. But they're really, I mean, they are essentially the next generation in um, you know in hunting rifle because you know the bolt action was originally what soldiers used in the you know early 1900s, and it's so and now the modern sporting rifle is. Actually, it's kind of on, or kind of one of the. It's been around since the 60s, and it's just now really making it into mainstream uh, hunting type uh, scenarios. But they're they're really they're lightweight, so they're they're semi-automatic, and as a result of the the action being semi-automatic, there's an inherent recoil reduction, uh, just because some of the recoil energy is spent in actually moving the 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 uh, moving parts in the gun. That's uh, you know, that occurs when when the you cycle the action and reload the next round. So for a three oh eight, so you you got a seven pound three oh eight semi automatic versus a seven pound three oh eight bolt action rifle, your semi automatic is going to have less felt recoil than your bolt action.
1: Now is that true if you look at a semi automatic three oh eight You know, regular old time rifle that's a semi-auto versus a modern sporting rifle that's you know obviously looks and feels different. Is that still going to be um, less recoil with the MSR compared to the regular Woodstock standard looking rifle?
3: Um, Generally, it's it's it depends on um, so like the the actual amount of mass that is moving. So like an an older style semi-automatic versus the modern sporting rifle it may have a little bit different amount of the bolt essentially the bolt carrier assembly may weigh more or less and that could potentially you know affect, it, affect the the uh, felt recoil
1: okay interesting now i guess the next thing naturally coming after us, if we've talked about the different types of guns you know rifle versus shotgun versus muzzleloader and now we've talked about the different calibers um, the next thing at least that i'm thinking about that if i'm trying to buy the gear to get started gun hunting is ammo and I kind of grew up with a family that was kind of you know uh, I'm trying to think of whether economical I'll say it would be the, the right word to use maybe um, you know I, I still use the same rifle that my grandpa gave me uh, you know 15 years ago and I still use a box of shells that he gave to me back then um, when it comes to rifle hunting up in northern Michigan and if I was buying new ammo I think you know we've always just kind of bought the baseline standard, you know, 308 ammo for that rifle. Um, I never really got into thinking about, you know, the more expensive, fancier ammunition or what that, what that might entail or what that might give me. Um, so I'm curious, you know, is expensive ammo worth the money for your average deer hunter? And, uh, you know, if so, what should I be looking for when buying ammunition?
3: Um, so, again, it kind of depends on, you know, if, if you're hunting thick woods and you're never never going to shoot past 100 yards, then it's probably not going to matter that much about whether you buy the, the cheapest stuff you can find versus, uh, you know, you don't need to be buying the $5 shot, you know, premium ammo or anything. But when you get into uh, longer range type, type things like maybe Western hunting with a rifle, uh, it definitely um, pays to go with a little bit higher end ammo that's not to say that there's not uh, lower end ammo that is is very consistent and shoots pretty well um but in general you know the more you the more you pay the more you get um with ammo and, and whether it's uh you know their quality control uh for that you know when they run that type of ammo is is a little bit tighter um or or whatever but um you there is some benefit to paying a little bit more for ammo
2: Okay, so we, now we talked about the AMO, and we actually had a guest on the podcast when we were talking about our, um, our, our Western hunting trip, and he told us that you should put as much money into your scope as you should your rifle. Um, do you agree with that? And then maybe could you elaborate on, um, as far as sights and optics, what are the best for uh, hunting situations?
3: I absolutely agree with um, the statement about the put as much or more or money into your scope as you do uh, into your rifle. Um, optics can make a huge difference um, in a wide variety of situations, but low light uh, is, which, you know, deer move in low light conditions. So it can it can mean the difference between being able to to shoot that deer up to the end of legal shooting time, or you know, having a call it quit 15 minutes early because you can't see through your scope. Um, that being said, uh, what type of scope, like the magnification of the scope, uh, is is it's pretty situationally dependent. Um, so. For for me, for um, eastern deer hunting, basically a three to nine is a is a really good. Uh, so it goes from three three times magnification up up to nine x and it's adjustable. Um, you know that's a very good, it's pretty pretty standard, um, versatile uh, setup. Um, you know out west, people may go with four to twelves or five to fifteen magnification. Um, <clears throat> you know in situations where uh, you want uh, a little bit more magnification when you're potentially shooting long ranges but at the same time um you know back east if you're hunting the brush country you may want like a, a fixed 4x scope or, or or something like that there there are a lot of um, different options there i a really good explanation of the um the clarity of optics or what kind of difference that can make is uh i have a, a coworker that Told me one time he he got like a, a Leopold, say it was like a two to two to five X scope or something like that. So a relatively low magnification scope, and he, when comparing it to a you know a different brand of three to nine X scope, he could make out better detail with the looking through the Leopold glass than he could looking through the, the nine power scope.
2: Okay. Now, one thing that I was kind of intimidated by, um, as far as buying a rifle and a scope is, and and maybe this is just me assuming, but, you know, range and having to do with the drop and, you know, the spin and and all this stuff, how do you have to do a lot of math and do you have to do a lot of like studying and, and taking notes when you're sighting in your rifle for different ranges?
3: I would say, you know, anything out to a hundred yards, no. When you get to 200 yards, depending on what the, the caliber is, um, you know, you, you at least need to, it would be good to at least look up online. Uh, most uh, ammunition manufacturers will have uh, tables available on their websites where you can go and say, okay, I, I shoot a, a 243 with a, uh, you know, I've got a 20 inch barrel, and then um, they they'll tell you if you have your gun zeroed at 100 yards, that your, you know, your gun's going or your bullet will drop two inches between 100 and 200 yards. Or, or you know, for example, um, when you get out to ranges when you're pushing 250, 300 yards, you definitely need you need to be aware of what of what your bullet is doing. Like um, I'm I'm just trying to recall. Like I, I think my I shoot at 243 uh, deer hunting sometimes and a hundred yards zero, I, I believe it is two inches low at 200. And then we're talking like nine inches low at 300. So if you're aiming center of mass, uh, at 300, you're potentially shooting under the deer or you know, hitting in the brisket or something like that. So, and 300 and beyond it gets, I mean, it's exponentially, um, you know, more drop. So, so, you definitely need to be aware of uh, what kind of uh, drop you're going to be seeing, and and sometimes those published tables aren't going to be exactly what your particular gun does. So if you're shooting past 300 yards, you need to you need to do the due diligence um, to make sure that. Uh, you know exactly where that bullet's going to go when, when you pull the trigger, and whether that's through actually practicing at longer ranges, <clears throat> or through uh, some people you can actually like take a chronograph and get the muzzle velocity of your particular uh, gun with that particular load, and then from that you can. Uh, there's all kinds of online calculators where it'll, you can put in all the inputs and it'll tell you exactly uh, how much it's going to drop.
1: So this, this ties in perfectly with where I kind of want to take things next, which is, you know, let's say I've got a gun now. Maybe I just bought one if I'm new, or let's say I've been gunning for a long time, but I want to figure out how to do this the right way. I want to talk about the proper way to sight in a gun and then the proper way to you know establish a practice regimen. So to start um, and tying in perfectly with what you're just talking about there, can you walk us through, you know, from your standpoint, working for a firearms manufacturer, how would you guys say is the correct way to sight in a new firearm before deer hunting season
3: well if it's a brand new out of the box the first thing i would do um would be to before you even take it out there is i would uh i would run like a, a bore brush to the bore i would i would clean the bore uh there's it's common for you know a a gun fresh off the line to have some sort of uh you know, crud from one of the manufacturing processes, or maybe the barrel has a certain type of heat treatment that might leave some some crud behind or whatever. So a good a good starting point is going to be um, just just clean the cl- clean the bore. Um, and one thing that, that's really important, um, and and this comes into whether the premium ammo is is uh, uh, worth it or not, is whatever you're siding your gun in with. That needs to be what you're hunting with. So don't buy the cheap stuff to sight your gun in, and then just go out and buy a, you know, a more expensive box of shells for hunting because it's not you're not comparing apples to apples. A 308, you know, Remington load does not equal a 308 Winchester load or or a 308 Federal load. So you need to make sure you you eliminate as many sources of variation as possible by by being consistent um, throughout the process. <clears throat> So, uh, so you got your, you got your, uh, your, your, barrel is clean. You, you go to the range, um, a really good, I mean, a common, uh, zero range is a hundred yards. Um, so what I would recommend is just making sure you had a, at a range with a hundred yards and, um, you want to be, you want to have a, a steady rest as you can possibly get. Um, if you can't sit there and, um, Feel like you can hold the crosshairs on the center of the target consistently, and then you're really you're really going to be chasing your tail because you're going to be like sitting there questioning yourself. Well, that bullet went left. Was that because I pulled it left, or is, is that because you know I need to move my scope left? Um, so you really need to make sure you have as steady a rest as possible um, to get started. Um, a good way. To, uh, to to get ready for for uh, for the sight in is uh, most modern guns other than some rim, rim fires, uh, you can actually dry cycle so when I say dry cycle is you can actually without without the gun loaded so completely unloaded um, you can you know take the safety off and pull the trigger and if you're so if you're looking through the, the scope and, and and pick out the center very center of you know of the target and just practice a couple times. Uh, you know, dry fire the gun a couple times, and and make sure that, you know, when you actually break the trigger, you know, when your hand-eye coordination lines up, that it uh, that the crosshairs is where you were where you wanted it to be. <clears throat> um, so after, you know, after you're you're comfortable, um, what I would do is I think you can you can legitimately sight in a gun uh, with a single box of the ammo. Um, not, you know, not knowing anything about it to begin with. So I would, I would start by firing maybe five shots, um, from your brand new gun just to like get it, get it on paper. Um, and then I would make sure I had cleaning, uh, supplies available, uh, at the range. So run, uh, run some patches or run the bore brush through it. And, um, it, it's typical for sometimes uh, a brand new barrel is going to have a couple of little sharp edges on the inside from from the manufacturing process, and what it'll sometimes do is it'll shave a little bit of copper off the jacket of your bullet, and it'll leave some copper behind in the bore. And what you want to do is after a few shots, it's kind of worn those the, the sharp edges down a little bit, so you want to you want to get it back to to square one um, by by cleaning it. Um, so then. Your next uh, three to five shots, I would make sure you got your—you um, your, would use that to get your point of impact as close to where your aiming point is possible. So, um, assuming you've got it on paper already, which you can get it on paper at any distance. It doesn't have to be 100 yards, but you, you, know, you at least want to get it as close to uh, where you're aiming as possible. Then the next three to five sh- shots, like I said, should be at the distance you plan to zero the rifle. Um, and at that point, I would say, uh, decopper or clean the bore again. And then, uh, with your next two shots, you would make sh- your final scope adjustments. So at that, those last, those next two shots, um, I would make sure that your impact is lining up as close to your uh, where your crosshairs are when you pull the trigger as possible. Um, and what I always like to do after sighting in is shoot like a, a three shot group. So you want to try to put three shots as close as possible together. And that, that kind of gives you an idea of, okay, well, rather than going out there and firing one shot and say, okay, it's, it's an inch from the the, the eye. I'm good to go. Shoot three shots. And that's not only helping you practice to, uh, try to get as consistent of, um, you know, muscle memory there as possible, but it, it kind of gives you an idea of, Hey, I can hold a two inch group at a hundred yards. So that means at 200 yards, if I have a steady rest, then I can probably hold about a four inch group. So, you know, that can give you confidence and kind of let you know, um, you know, at what distances you have business taking shots versus at what distances you, you know, you really should be, um, should be careful. Um, and I guess the, the last thing I'll say there is don't, don't be discouraged by, you know, what, if you shoot a three shot group and say, it's like a, they a three inch extreme spread or something. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty common. Um, you know, great shooters can shoot great groups. But not everybody's a great shooter. And, you know, for deer hunting, you don't have to be the best shot in the world. But a, a three-inch group of 100 yards is, is more than adequate for making an ethical, clean kill on an on animal.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater.
1: So when the, I guess the follow-up question to that then is, you know, if, if that's the right way to cite in. And, you know, it sounds like it's, you know, a fairly... Uh, 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 it's it's a process that you have to go through, right? You need to shoot several times, see where that group is, adjust your sight, shoot several times, adjust. Um, a lot of people, I think, do that to some degree. They sight in, they feel like they're pretty much on zero or close enough, and then they go out hunting for the rest of the season. And they might the next year might come around, and they'll just say, "Hey, last year I was zeroed in. I'll go out go out hunting again," or maybe they'll go out to the range and they'll shoot once, make sure they hit pretty close to the bull, and they'll say, hey, I'm good, I'm going to go hunting. Um, Is that okay to do? Or do you think there should be some kind of consistent practice with a gun? And then if that's the case, what would you say a a good practice regimen with a firearm should look like?
3: Okay, I'll I'll say this to start with. Uh, Yeah, I know a lot of your listeners are pretty hardcore deer hunters, probably a a vast majority of of which are archery hunters. And I know most archery hunters I know when it's June and it's in the summertime, we're out after work and we're we're shooting our bows a couple nights a week at least. Yes, we're, we're practicing quite a bit with archery. And, you know, the good thing about a firearm is you don't necessarily, you don't have to practice as much as you, as you do with archery. But lack of practice should not be, uh, I don't think it should be an excuse. Um, there are... Obviously, not everybody can shoot a firearm in their backyard, like they might be able to shoot a bow. But there are ways that you you can practice. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, is um, dry fire. So um, there are a lot of like action shooters and, and stuff out there that a huge portion of their practice regimen is involved. Um, I mean, dry fire, dry fire in the basement. So um, you know, the the real, the important thing when you're when you're talking dry fire is you know if you have your your room that you um, keep all your hunting gear in your closet or you know whatever when you when you're dry firing you need to make sure that whatever ammo is available for that gun is locked up and completely put away because the last thing you want to do is shoot a hole in your roof in your cat <laughs> whatever <laughs> um but that that's a really cheap easy way and that's that's it's it's the same thing it's muscle memory Um, you know, you're focusing on when you pull the trigger, um, that you hear that you hear and feel the click as you look through the scope and and the, the crosshairs on the scope is where you want it to be every time you pull the trigger. So as far as that goes, I would recommend every year prior to getting out and hunting because, because when you hunt, you know, you're walking through the woods, you might, you have the potential to jar or bump or accidentally, um, cause something to, to, uh, to move, um, so I would say once a year at least before you go hunting, you need to go out to the range and just shoot it. And, and, and honestly, I've gotten to the point where I'll go out and I'll just shoot three shots. And if they're where I want, I'll back the gun up and I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Um, and, and then at least I know I can go into the woods with confidence saying, hey, my gun's where it should be. I just need to you know to execute.
1: Okay, now speaking of executing um, the actual shot process with a firearm, I've heard lots of different things about people that say, you know, hold your breath while you're pulling the pulling the trigger, or pull the trigger when you're exhaling, or pull the trigger when you're breathing in, or all, all these different things. What is your opinion on the correct actual trigger pulling process when you when you've got the target in your sight and you're ready to go? What should you do?
3: Um, typically, uh, what what they'll teach like um, in in sniper schools and stuff like that would be you would, you would inhale, you would partially exhale and then you would break the trigger. So you don't inhale all the way and hold your breath, but you don't, um, you don't inhale. You don't necessarily break the shot in the middle of a breath. You know, you would, you would exhale partially and pause um, to make the shot. Um, As far as that goes, there's, there's a lot of different techniques to doing it, and my advice would be, whatever works for you, go with it. <laughs> you know, if you if you do better with a, a full um, a full breath in your lungs whenever you you know pull the trigger, then you know stick with what's comfortable for you because in the heat of the moment, your <laughs> chances are you might not even remember that oh I'm I'm not supposed to hold my breath all the way I need to let out uh, you know a half a breath or, or whatever
1: <laughs> true yeah I can definitely attest to uh, in the moment of truth I sometimes don't even remember who I am let alone uh, how how much of a breath I should take so yeah so we've we've got our gun we've got sighted in we've practiced a few times I think the next thing at least I think that we probably need to start addressing is is cleaning or taking care of that gun um, can you walk us through a little bit in regards to what kind of maintenance or cleaning you should do with your gun, either, well, I guess all, both before the season, during the season, and after. What does that look like?
3: um, So I guess before the season, um, I did not, uh, I talked about uh, sighting in in the rifle, and after you are comfortable where, where your point of impact is, after you've got it sighted in, I do not recommend touching it. I don't recommend cleaning the bore at all, Um, because what what, what the guys do um, at sniper school, if they uh, as soon as they change uh, or as soon as they clean their barrel, they fire like five or ten fouling shots to get it to get it back to the dirty condition where it's where it's more consistent. Um, Because if you think about it, if you you can't possibly uh, clean your gun. After every single shot so your first shot is going to be from a clean bore and every shot after that is going to be from a dirty bore um, so I, I do not recommend uh, cleaning you know if you want to clean uh, once a year uh, or it will run it like a, a uh, orderly patch down through the bore uh, when you get um, when you get done for the seasons then that's certainly um, a good idea but I don't think that it's, uh, I, I guess the, where this is coming from is I grew up and it was, well, if you took the gun out and went hunting, you need to clean it when you're done. Um, and, and that's not necessarily with the bore in particular, it's not necessarily, um, you know, the best practice. As far as the rest of the gun goes, uh, really, you're, you're just trying to keep, I mean, honestly, you're just trying to keep it from resting. So Uh, You know, there's a a lot of different uh, gun lubricating products like uh, REM oil is a a common one. And so just an oily rag, uh, wiping down the exterior, uh, wiping down the moving parts so that, um, you you know, you don't have any uh, exposed surfaces that don't have some sort of, um, you know, lubricant on them to prevent rust. Uh, During the season... Uh, I don't typically do too much with mine unless you know if I if I get out and it's it's raining or it gets damp for whatever reason. Definitely do not want to leave it in the case or 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 store it after it's been wet without taking it out as soon as you get home and just wipe it down um, with an oily rag, and uh, that'll that'll prevent you from from having any you know rust spots or um, things like things of that nature. Um, and then after the season. Uh, like I said, if you can choose to to clean the bore, but you if you did choose to clean the bore after the season, I would definitely recommend doing a couple follow-up shots the next year when you're ready to take it out again to uh, confirm that you're where you think um, you need to be.
1: Now, all that that I'm assuming that applies to rifles and shotguns, right? But um, if you're using a muzzleloader, it's a very different story, right?
3: Yes, and that's uh, honestly that's been a source of my pain growing up was with uh, trying to figure out how to be consistent with muzzleloaders. Um, so you know muzzleloaders in general use uh, black powder or pyrodex or triple um, seven or, or what have you, and they all um, they all leave a lot more res- residue in the bore than your your typical um, centerfire rifle cartridge. Um, so what I've run into in the past is uh, I'll shoot one shot through my loader and I'll reload it and haven't touched the thing, and then the next shot will be you know, a foot away or, or whatever. And I've learned um, that one of the, the real uh, critical things is you really need to make sure your bullet is seated to the same depth every time. And, and a good way to accomplish that is going to be um, – after after every shot you can run a um, a wet patch so uh, i think they cabella sells actually a container that's just full of pre-moistened patches that have some sort of powder solvent on there so you you shoot and then you you run a wet patch through there then run a dry patch right behind it and then uh, then reload and when I've when I've started doing that, I've taken little loaders that I thought could, could honestly not hit the broad side of the barn, and I've got them to where I'm very comfortable um, you know, shooting with them and knowing that I'm going to hit within you know, an inch or two of where I'm aiming every time. Um, so that I guess uh, the, be- the best way to-, to make sure that you're getting the, the same uh, bullet shooting depth every time is take the, take the clean gun and load it uh, once. And then you need to, um, so you load the powder and the uh, the bullet or the bow in there, and then you would put your ramrod as far down into the barrel as it'll go, and then I take like a knife and or a screwdriver and score the ramrod, so that shows you with a perfectly clean gun that the the powder and the bullet is, needs to be seated to this depth, and so then from that point on, anytime you um, load it you can use the ramrod essentially as a measuring stick to make sure that your bullet and your powder are loaded to the proper depths. Another thing that does is um, occasionally people will leave muzzle loaders loaded. So, uh, you know, if not everybody wants to shoot the muzzle loader into the ground or whatever every, after every hunt. So a lot of people will leave them loaded for a season or sometimes a season turns into the next season. Well, that's a good way to know Hey, this one's already loaded. I don't need to uh, dump another load of powder or charge of powder and a bullet in there, because then you could
1: really have a problem. <laughs> yeah, that would uh, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? <laughs>
3: yeah, and it's been done a lot more times than you'd think.
2: <laughs> I just imagine the Looney Tunes where Elmer Fudd shoots the gun and it banana peels backwards. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that can be a little scary. I've I've always I've always felt you know when shooting a muzzleloader, there's always that small little bit of like unknown with those guns where you worry if you did something a little wrong, it it might not quite go the way you want it to. Um, Yeah, exactly. But you know, I guess moving on to the final step for a gun hunter, we've got our gun, we've got it sighted and practiced, we've got it cleaned, ready to rock and roll. Now, when we're actually out there hunting, you know, would you say that a deer hunter's strategy should be significantly different with a gun than what they might have when they're out there bow hunting? And if so, you know what do you think of those basic big differences?
3: Well, I mean, the beauty of a gun is you do have a lot more range than, than with a bow. Um, so there is the potential that it would be a better strategy to hunt, say, the stand that has a lot you can see a lot farther from from expand so you know it potentially is a better strategy to do that on the same token you know maybe the deer don't like you know the area where you can see as far because they know they can be seen from further away so I guess uh, from a uh, from a strategy of where the deer are going to be that's a that's up to to you to decide I guess but I I personally like to hunt in areas where I can see a little bit farther than um, maybe is typical
1: for some of my my bow hunting setups. Yeah. yeah, and on the distance, on the distance side of things, there's been a lot of talk relatively recently. It's been talked about quite a bit over many years, but just recently, uh, the Boone and Crockett Club released a statement. Um, I think it was earlier this year or late last year regarding the ethics of long range shooting. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on you know just your personal opinion on how to set an appropriate maximum distance for in it for yourself and then you know what you think about long distance shooting and is that you know is that an ethical choice when you're talking about shooting 600 700 800 yards at at an animal
3: okay um so what i would say is that i think it personally i don't feel that it's ethical for someone to shoot at an animal at a distance further than what they've ever shot at you know on the range so you know it's sh- you shouldn't be testing the waters by shooting at an animal you know because what happens you-, you shoot it in the leg you shoot it in the guts um you know you're you're really not doing the animal um any favors <laughs> obviously by doing that so i don't i think your maximum range should be the farthest you've ever practiced that or pretty close to it you know if if the, if the deer comes out it. 325 and you've practiced 300 then you know i understand but um you know to to further your point about you know the ethics of shooting uh long range six and seven hundred yards um my uh, personally if you can get 600 or 600 yards from an animal um then you can get 300 yards from it i i don't see i don't see that um, 600 to 700 yard shots are required for people to be successful. Um, I don't think there's really any hunting situations or there, there are very few hunting situations where, where the only chance of success is taking that 700 yard shot. Um, that being said, some guys just like the challenge of shooting at, at long range. And my opinion on that is, you know, if you practice and you are comfortable with that range and you can make um, a quick clean kill at that range, then, then wear it out. I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't personally, um, have a problem with that aspect of it, but I, I do have a problem with the guys that are, you know, going out and, and, you know, shooting at 700 yards at a, uh, you know, at an animal that, you know, they've never practiced out past hundred yards in their life. So.
1: Yeah. And I think that applies right to any kind of hunting, whether you're out there with a firearm or, or a gun, a rifle, a shotgun, or bow, you know you should never shoot beyond what you're very confident in and that you've done before you you've demonstrated in the past that you can accurately and ethically kill an animal at that range like you said it, when you're actually out in the field hunting that's not the time to test the waters and just see hey maybe if I lob one out there maybe I'll hit it's you know that's not the ethical choice that's not in my opinion the right way to do it so sure. but it's definitely like you also like you mentioned though it's a personal you know, choice on what your maximum range is. And and like you said, if you can do that ethically and cleanly at whatever range it is, that's, that's your, your choice. So I'm curious, uh, Dan over there being the, the least gun hunting experience. Do you have any other questions for Luke from a actually in the field standpoint, um, about, you know, tips or tricks or anything like that?
2: No, I I tell you what, what this has done for me though, is I've always wanted to, um, try try out a muzzle loader. I've never I don't even know if I've shot a muzzle loader before and um I have a lot of friends telling me that it's it's pretty fun and and uh, I think I'm going to this this podcast might have been the tipping point for me as far as just getting a, a a starter muzzle loader and just starting to practice with it.
1: That's awesome. I think uh I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Luke then for you, now that you've inspired my co-host Dan to uh, <laughs> to go out there and get a muzzle muzzleloader and try his hand at gun hunting, um, do you have any final parting advice for someone out there, whether they're new like Dan or someone who's been a, you know using a firearm for a long time, any other parting advice when it comes to hunting with a gun that, that everyone should keep in mind moving forward this season? Uh,
3: yeah, just one thing I would say is that uh, when you actually get into the field, you want to be set up in a position where you can get the most steady rest possible because the key to being, um, accurate and being precise with your shooting is being able to have, you know, you got to have a, a steady rest. So, you know, whatever means necessary, whether it's a, a, a bipod on your gun or a shooting rail around your tree stand or whatever, I can't stress enough how important it is to have a steady rest because it doesn't matter how accurate your gun is. Um, you know, if not many people can make, you know, a offhand shot at one hundred and fifty yards, especially when it's the deer of a lifetime and you and you're, you're barely uh, standing upright without falling down from shaking.
1: <laughs> that's uh that's a that's definitely something that people need to keep in mind, especially for the bow hunter, turned gun hunter, for someone who's out there with uh, you know, just a regular portable hang-on tree stand that doesn't have any kind of rest. You know, that's something I've struggled with in the past. I've got all my stands hung up to be bow hunting, and then when I do go out there with a firearm, you know there is no good rest. So I've started bringing a shooting stick, and I, I've actually cut a hole in a tennis ball and stuck that tennis ball on the bottom of my shooting stick so that when I use that shooting stick and I set it down to rest on the base of my tree stand platform, it doesn't go through the little holes in the metal. Um so that's what I've used to try to get a good rest and that's helped. Um, but I think to your point, getting a shooting rail, if you're in a tree stand or, you know, having specific gun hunting stands, like a box blind or ground blind or whatever you're using, um, that's super important. Do you have any advice? Uh, I guess a fi- final question when it comes to, um, you know, when you're shooting on the, like, maybe you're walking to your stand, um, and you're standing or you, you're, you know, caught, you know surprised anything any tips for getting that kind of offhand shot and and doing that the best possible way
3: (laughs) um you know off offhand is is tough uh what I would say is that if you anticipate uh, being in a situation where you you know say you have a long route to your stand I would I would spend some time at the ranch just practicing offhand and uh you know a lot of it's timing because no one's going to be able to hold the crosshairs perfectly steady offhand so you you really got to work on the hand eye coordination to uh to break the trigger um at the time where the where the scope is in the right place um so i would just recommend uh practice and you can also practice dry fire um the same way um so that's probably what i would recommend
1: okay awesome is there any value to um to different you know shooting positions like if possible should they kneel or sit um or i mean from what i understand you know kneeling is good, seated is even better, and prone, you know, laying down flat is the absolute best. Is that true? And if possible, if you have the time to do it in the view and stuff, should you try to get in one of those positions rather than just standing up? Uh,
3: yeah, I would say the closer to the ground you are, the more stable you're going to be. And, and that pretty much falls right along with, uh, you know, standing versus kneeling versus sitting versus prone. Um, so and anything you can do to kind of, Locks your body into, uh, or, or that lock the gun into a more stable position. Whether it's uh, clamping against, uh, you know, uh, using a tree as a as a uh, as a prop or or whatever, or a backpack, uh, anything you can do um, to to get more stable, closer to the ground. Um, you know, you're you're going to be helping yourself.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I think that me and Dan here are well prepared with. Some great new information about how to you know be better firearm hunters, and I definitely know that this season I'll be I'll be out there with my muzzleloader and my rifle at times, and uh, I might even get a shotgun this year to do a little bit of gun hunting here in southern Michigan without needing to clean my muzzleloader all the time. So um, this has been this has been super helpful for me, and and hopefully for a lot of other people out there, um, because I know there's a lot of gun hunters listening to our podcast, and we have done a lousy job of talking about it. So so thank you, Luke, for helping us uh, for making. Sure Sure, we can talk on that topic and, and with an expert like you giving us the information
3: no problem thank you guys for having me
1: all right well that's going to be it for us today so as always we'd like to thank our partners who help make the wired to hunt podcast possible so big thank you to sick gear trophy ridge bear archery redneck blinds Huntera maps Huntsoft, lacrosse boots and the whitetail institute of north america and thank you to all of you joining us today hope we were able to offer you some helpful insight into the gun side of the deer hunting world. And most importantly, I hope you enjoyed your time with us. So have a great week and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam